How many know this country needs prayer? Yeah. Amen. But what is it we're praying for? You know, I was thinking about that as, as I've worked over these last, actually almost a year now, in pre- preparation for this year's National Day of Prayer. You know, these last few weeks in really moving towards the actual event is what are we praying for? What is it we want to see happen? You know, there's a lot going on. It's an election year, and I'm telling you, is it an election year or what? Man, there's all kinds of stuff going on this year. But what is it we really want to see happen? You know, as most of you know, I used to work as a former police officer. My last three and a half years of my career as a former police officer, I worked at the training academy. One of the things we do with the recruits down at the training academy, obviously, we teach them how to fire a, a weapon. We do firearms training. Part of that training is teaching them how to fire at a target. Initially, it's all about you know, using the gun and make sure you have proper technique and all that. But by the time they get to the end of the academy, they go through what's called officer survival school. In an officer survival school, part of that is teaching them what's called a threat assessment. This is where we present them with several different threats, and their responsibility is to identify the most dangerous threat and neutralize that threat first. Part of that is they go into a room, and you've probably seen this on TV, where the targets pop up, and you know, one and maybe a guy with a, with a gun, or another one's a lady with a baby, or whatever. And you're supposed to go through and assess those threats and determine which ones are a threat, which ones are not a threat, and which ones can wait till later. Because sometimes when you're out on the street, there's a lot of different threats you're presented with, but there are ones that need your immediate attention, and there's others you can deal with later. And as I was thinking about that, you know, what are we praying for this year with the National Day of Prayer? What do we really want to see in this country? And what threats are, are really being presented to the church. I want to take us through sort of a threat assessment tonight in regards to the church because it's important that we're aiming at the right target because if we're not aiming at the right target, we're missing the, the most important threat. And if we miss a threat, as a police officer, if I'm missing the most dangerous threat, it's going to literally endanger my life or somebody else's life if I don't go after the right threat. If I get distracted by something that looks dangerous, but really isn't, I am now, I've now put myself in a dangerous position where I am facing something that I may not even know is there. And I think a lot of times in the church, we get distracted by things that appear like a threat, and we miss the most dangerous things. We're all aware, of course, everybody I'm sure is aware of the latest debate, if you will, in the public square, uh, de- you know, to speaking of targets, of Target. Man, that's everywhere. Now, is that one of the biggest threats facing the church? If you're following Facebook, it's probably number one right now. But is that, is that, now, am I saying it's a good policy? Absolutely not. But is that the biggest threat we're faced with in the church? Is it the politics that are going on right now? Man, I mean, it's like watching a three-ring circus with the politics right now. I'm telling you. Is that the biggest threat facing the church at the moment? Is it the, the, the agenda of Washington and Congress and, and the Supreme Court? Is that the biggest threat facing the church? Is it the the LGBT community and their agenda? Is that the biggest threat facing the church? See, there's a lot of different threats out there, and we need to identify what is the biggest and most dangerous threat and go after that. Because if we're distracted with something that's not the biggest threat, we're in trouble. We're going to be sideswiped, or we're going to be taken out. We don't even know what's going to happen or where it came from. So if we were to do a threat assessment as a church as a whole I personally believe our biggest threat is not out there it's not an external threat it's an internal one that threat has always been out there and it's always going to be out there 
You read through the the New Testament, look at what Paul dealt with and all the other apostles. That external threat has always been there. But I think there's an internal threat that we miss. We're so focused on the external, we forget about the internal threat. And all throughout the Bible, we see God promising to bless and protect those who honor and obey him, correct? And this is what Psalm 91 is all about. It is a promise from God to bless and protect those who honor and obey him. So if God promises that, is that promise based on the enemy not being stronger than us? Or is it based on the enemy having an okay tactic? Or is it just based on God himself? See, that promise of protection has nothing to do with the enemy. It has everything to do with God. It has everything to do with us honoring and obeying the Lord. That's all that matters. It doesn't matter what the enemy does. It doesn't matter what's outside. If we abide in the, in, in the secret place, God promises to cover us with his shadow. And what is that covering? The entire rest of Psalm 91 is the promise of protection of being under the shadow of the Almighty. If you are under the shadow of the Almighty, that is a place of protection. A thousand may fall at your left, ten thousand at your right, but it's not going to touch you. But that, does that mean it's only going to happen if, if you have a weak enemy or, or if the enemy is not politically correct or politically connected? It has nothing to do with the enemy. It's all about God. So when we look at this, we got to realize that this protection is not based on the external threats. It has nothing to do with the external threats. It's based on the internal heart of his people. And that's what I think, in my opinion, is the greatest threat against the church tonight. In this country, in our current environment, in our current climate, in the current condition in this church, I believe there are three threats that are the most dangerous to the church right now, and they have nothing to do with anything going on there. So tomorrow, when we pray for this country, when we pray to see revival come to this country, is there anybody here who doesn't want to see revival? Okay, we want to see revival. We want to see awakening. You know, if you read of the great awakenings of the past and the great moves of God, we look and go, man, why isn't God doing that today? You know, I had lunch today with Stephen Evans, my friend who goes to Central America, and he's literally shaking entire nations for Jesus. And whenever I come back from a trip like that, people ask me, why isn't it happening here? Why don't we see that great move here? Why? I read about John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards and all those guys. Why isn't it happening here? Well, I believe part of the reason why it's not happening here is because we're focused on the wrong target. We're not going after the right thing. We're focused on something that's distracting us from the most dangerous threat to the church culture today. And there are three things I want to specifically target tonight that are a threat to the church. If these three things are addressed, if we can target and go after these three things, in my opinion, we're going to see revival break out. We're going to see a a sweep across this country that we want to see. And and in fact, I believe the next move of God is going to be the greatest move we have ever seen. The greatest move we've ever heard about. If Jonathan Edwards, if John Wesley, if Charles Spurgeon could read about this coming wave, they would be jealous of us rather than us jealous of them. That's how big this is going to be. But it's going to take us focusing on these threats. So here are the three threats that I believe that are impeding the church, and spilling out into the culture. Number one is our own sin. It's our sin. It's not theirs. That's number one. Number two 
is our complacency and our comfort. And then number three is our own prideful attitudes. I want to hit all three of these individually. So let's look at our own sin. I was reading an article last week, and the title of the article was, What Was the Real Sin of Sodom? You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And most people, if I were to say, what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, 99.9% of the people would say, well, it was the homosexual agenda in Sodom and Gomorrah. In this article, they referenced a verse in Ezekiel I, uh, I've read before, but I've never caught before, that literally reveals the sin of Sodom. And the context of this is in Ezekiel chapter 16. God is talking to Israel about their sin. And he's telling Israel, you are worse than Sodom. And in the middle of this, he identifies the sin of Sodom. The entire discourse is Ezekiel 16, 44 through 52. But right in the middle of this discourse, God says this, Sodom's sin were pride, gluttony, and laziness while the poor and needy suffered outside the door. She was proud and committed detestable sins, so I wiped her out. Then God goes on to say, your sin is so great it actually makes Sodom look righteous. So how is that possible? How is Israel's sin so much worse than Sodom? Because Israel had the revelation of God and Sodom did not. God came in and gave Israel his revelation, and in spite of that revelation, they still acted like Sodom, and that is worse than nobody having the revelation and acting like the world. So how much more for us? We have this great revelation from God. We've got the entire Bible, and yet the sin of the church looks a lot like the sin of the world. So which is greater? Let me give you an illustration. Let's say I were to walk up to somebody and I were to put a million dollars in their bank account and yet they were to go and, and file for, for welfare and live on welfare with a million dollars in the bank account versus somebody else who has absolutely no money, no job, whatever, and they need that support from, from welfare and they go out and get welfare. Who's got the greater sin? If you've got a million dollars in the bank, why are you on welfare? If we have the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, why are we walking in the ways of the world? Which is the greater sin? What Target did or the church who's looking like the world? Here's the thing about the sin of the church. In the book, in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, over and over and over again, God says, if you will obey me, I will bless you. If you do not obey me, I will curse you. The only reason Israel ever lost to her enemies was because she, she sinned against the Lord. It had nothing to do with the strength of the enemy. There's a great, great story in Joshua chapter 7 where Israel has destroyed Jericho. They go to try and take Ai, the small little town, they send 3,000 men up there to try and take Ai, and they get defeated. And when they come back and tell Joshua, we were defeated, what does Joshua do? He doesn't redouble the number of people and go, oh, he just didn't send enough up there. He didn't say, oh, Ai's a lot stronger than I thought. What does he do? He immediately falls on his face before God because he knows the only reason Israel was ever defeated was because God was against her. Not had nothing to do with her enemies. So when he gets on his face before God, what does God say? He said, hey, there's sin in the camp. I can't bless you. This is why you're losing to your enemies. And I'm here to say, the reason we find this country in the state it's in is not because of Washington. It's not because of Wall Street. It's not because of Target. It's because the church has sinned against the Lord. We have walked away from the Lord. The promise of the Word of God is always victory. It is always victory. 
We have everything we need to live the victorious Christian life. If we are not walking in victory, it's not because the enemy is greater. It's because we're not in line with the Lord. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Well, that's either true or not. Either the Holy Spirit within us is greater than the enemy of the world or he's not. And if we're not walking in victory, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's us. We are out of line with the Lord. And here's the thing. If we want to see revival in this country, we have to confess our own sin first. The great revivalist, he's called the the father of modern revivalism, Charles Finney, back in the 1820s. When he got saved, and he was radically saved, and, and the Lord just sent him out, the first place he went was to the church. And he called the church to repentance. He didn't go out into the fields calling the world to repent. He went out and called the church to repent. And through that repentance, over the next 10 to 15 years, the second great awakening exploded across this country. It always starts in the church. If we're sitting around waiting for God to do something out there, we're not going to see anything because he's waiting for us to do something in here. In fact, he's waiting for something to go on right in here. We have to get on our face before the Lord. We have to humble ourselves before God and ask for his forgiveness for our sin. That's number one, our own sin. Number two, our complacency and comfort. Man, we live in a comfortable country. I've been to Central America many times with Stephen and Light of Life International. I'm telling you, we live like kings and queens. You walk into a, a neighborhood in, in Central America, Nicaragua, Honduras, Panama. I mean, it is literal, abject poverty. We don't go door to door. We go curtain to curtain because they don't have doors. They don't have windows. They don't have AC. When we walk up to a house and we give them a grocery bag, a Walmart-sized bag of food, it's enough to feed four for a week. We are so blessed in this country. But our blessing has become a curse. When Solomon was dedicating the temple and he prayed to God and said, Lord, if the day ever comes that your blessing causes your people to turn away from you, would you make a way back? And God's answer is 2 Chronicles 7.14. That's the context of that verse. Solomon dedicates the temple and says, I know what prosperity is all about. One of the richest men who ever walked the, walked the earth. And he said, but I also know that the temptation of prosperity is to draw us away from our dependence upon the Lord. And too often, we are more interested in our comfort than we are in God building our character. And I fear that this This election cycle, the Lord is saying, you think you want to vote for somebody who's going to make things comfortable for you. Let me put somebody in there that's going to fine-tune your character. When Israel went to Samuel and said, hey, give us a king. We want to be like everybody else. God said, okay, you want a king? I'll give you a king. And he gave him Saul, one of the worst kings in Israel. We need to be careful why we vote. Not to vote, we need to vote. But why? What are we looking for? Are we praying tomorrow to make our country comfortable? Lord, put somebody in the White House to make it so much easier for us because I can't stand all this pressure. I just want it to be peaceful and comfortable. I want to go home and watch Jeopardy and do it in peace. God's not interested in that. And I'm telling you, throughout the entire history of the church, the greatest growth always comes through persecution. The greatest growth has never come in times of comfort. Never. Just, it's just the way it is. So 
if you really want to see revival, it kind of goes hand in hand with some persecution. Because it's getting us off our comfortable spot. We cannot be comfortable and grow in character at the same time. It's impossible. It's like going to the gym. If I go to the gym by myself, I'll be there for like 10 minutes. If I go to the gym with a coach and other, other people, man, I'll get there and I'll get it done. But doing it on my own ain't going to happen. I need some external motivation. And the Lord is ramping up that external motivation for us as a church right now. There's no doubt in my mind, these last eight years and the however many years before that, with all that's happened since 2001, 9-11, all that's happened, God is saying, wake up. Wake up. And we're saying, God, just please make it more comfortable. It's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Because it's not about our comfort. It's about the kingdom. The kingdom does not grow in comfort. The kingdom grows through our character. And when we allow God to build in us the character that can stand firm in the storm of persecution, that's when the gates of hell will not prevail. That's the church God is trying to raise up. That's the type of people we need to be. We need to be willing to stand up against whatever comes regardless of how it makes us look or how it makes us feel. It doesn't matter. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Him. It's about His glory. And it's about Him showing the world how much He loves them. The other thing that occurs in comfort is, man, we get so idle, we end up being Pharisees. That's all we do. We just sit around and point out what everybody else is doing wrong. I'm telling you, you just, you just get around a group of Christians and just listen to their conversation. Within about five minutes, it's going to be about what everybody else is doing wrong. Guarantee you. It's about what everybody else is doing wrong. It's never about, wow, man, you know, my, I'm really broken. You know, I just, I really had a bad week, and, and, but it's because of my own sin, and here's what I did, and I need prayer, and that doesn't happen. It's, it's about Target. It's about... ISIS, it's about whatever, everybody else, but who's in the conversation. We turn into Pharisees. We, we stand up and we point out what everybody else is doing wrong, but we won't let anybody into our lives to say, hey, um, did you notice this that's going on in your life? We won't allow that, but we point out everybody else. We need to be very, very careful because Jesus' harshest words were not against the world. It was against the Pharisees. It was against the religious. Those who thought they knew it all and knew what everybody else should do and wanted to let everybody else know what to do. And the thing about a Pharisee is they always refer to rules. It's always about the law. That's, you can't do that what it's all about when it comes to being a Pharisee. We need to be very careful. Idleness leads to Phariseeism. But God says this about religion. In the book of James, he says, pure and undefiled religion before God is not pointing out everybody else's wrong. It has nothing to do with that. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit orphans and widows in their distress. And to keep oneself unspotted from the world. It says nothing about anybody else or what they're not doing or doing right. doesn't matter. It's not about them. It's about you, baby. It's about me. I would gather most of those people, most of those Christians who get in those types of circles, and most Christians in general, at some point we get into that type of discussion. But 90 plus percent of Christians, I guarantee you, have not done something within the last week or month to provide justice for the poor, the orphan, the widow, or the stranger. That is the thing God wants right there. You look at the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, and God tells Israel, stop all your worship. I'm sick of it. 
go out and seek justice and then come back and talk to me. Modern translation, quit showing up on Sundays and praising my name and then going off on Monday and living any way you want and ignoring the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. That's what God is after. That's the type of people God wants. Or those who are willing to go out. Remember that sin of Sodom? They had all those things, pridefulness, laziness, while the poor were outside suffering. What are we doing for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger? That's what it's about. We are here to provide justice, the true justice of the kingdom. The government's not going to do it. We better. Because on that day of days, when we stand before Jesus, he's not going to tally off how many days we showed up in church. He's going to say, hey, what'd you do for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger? What'd you do for them? Am I saying you shouldn't go to church? Nope. I'm saying you should not stop going to church. I'm saying you should go to church, and you should also seek justice for the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the stranger. We should do that together. We don't need welfare to do it. We have Jesus. We need to quit relying on the government to do what we've been called to do, to be the answer for a, for a, a community that's in distress, an answer for a, for a world that is without hope. We hold that answer in our hands. And all we got to do is give it away. That's all we got to do is give it away. But we're just holding on to it so we can be comfortable. Number one, we have to confess our own sin. Number two, we've got to be willing to get out of our comfort zone. And then finally, number three is our prideful attitudes. It's funny, we expect the world to conform to biblical standards. We do all the time. And that's why we point at them all the time. Look what they're doing. It's not even close to being what the Bible says. They're the world. Here's the problem with trying to hold the world to biblical standards. When we do that, we're preaching a false gospel. The gospel says you cannot follow biblical standards apart from Jesus. That's why you need Jesus. So when we tell the world, go clean up your act, and then we'll agree with you, and then we'll let you in, we are preaching a false gospel. When we look at organizations and, and we, we deride them for not following biblical values, we're basically saying, you can do this on your own, and when you do, then you'll be accepted. That is just the opposite of the gospel. The gospel says you can't do this on your own. Here's why you can't do it on your own. But if you'll come to me, I'll give you the power to do it through me. The law is not here to try and fix us to make us better so we can be presented to God. The law is here to show us we can't fix ourselves. It's here to say you can't do this. You cannot live up to this standard. But I'll do it in through and for you that's what jesus did that's what that's what the gospel is all about he fulfilled the law and he wants to fulfill it in us for us and through us to them but when we hold up this law standard to the world and say hey here's where you need to be in order for us to accept you we are preaching a false gospel and we are cutting millions of people off from the truth. Because they think, oh, well, that's the gospel. I can't do that, so I don't need Jesus. When in reality, we need to get into their world and say, look, I know where you are. I've been there. You can't fix yourself. Let me introduce you to somebody who can. That's what Jesus is all about. But for too long, the church has been confessing everyone else's stuff instead of confessing our stuff. We're telling everybody else what they're doing wrong, but we're completely ignoring our own wrong. This is, again, this is why most Christian Bible studies or groups 
the discussion turns to, well, this is what they're, did you hear what the guy down the street did? Did you hear on the news what Donald Trump said? Did you hear? Why don't we talk about Jesus? Can we talk about Jesus? What has he done for you today? And what do you need him to do in your life today? Let's focus on me. Let's focus on you. I can't fix them, but Jesus can. So let's tell them about Jesus. Let's forget about telling them everything they're doing wrong. They already know that. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world. I came that the world might be saved. And when the woman caught in adultery was thrown at his feet and everybody finally left, he said, is there no one left to condemn you? She said, no. He said, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yet one of the greatest messages the church is preaching right now is condemnation. We are condemning everything and everyone around us. And that does not draw people to the Lord. It is the kindness of the Lord that calls people to repentance. Not the condemnation. If it was the condemnation... Jesus would never have needed to come because all God would have had to do is show up and say, you're all wrong. Oh my gosh. And we come running. It's the kindness. It's the love. For God so condemned the world that he sent Jesus? Nope. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. You know, it takes courage to confess your own sin. It takes a lot of courage to confess your own sin. I remember the first time that I ever publicly confessed that I was addicted to pornography. It was in a CR group over at uh, Rush Creek in Arlington. It was long before we started the groups here. And I was sitting in a group listening to other guys confess. And one guy confessed, hey, you know what? I'm addicted to pornography. And man, that jumped on me like I thought, oh my gosh, I cannot believe you just said that because I know how much courage it takes to say that because I don't have the guts to say it but when he said it I thought okay he didn't burst into flames nobody shot him maybe I can say it and for the first time I confessed my sin of pornography and from that day forward the Lord set me on a path of healing and restoration but it took taking the courageous step of confessing. And unfortunately, most Christians, when it comes to confessing their sin, we're cowards. We'll want everybody else to confess their sin. Oh, brother, you need to confess. When it comes to me, mm -mm. I'm good, thanks. Pass. And when we look at people who've been through Celebrate Recovery, CR, I'm one of those people. Can I tell you right now, we look at them as those people. They're broken people. They're one of them, as if we're not, as if we're different. Just because our sin is different doesn't mean we're not broken. I'm one of those people. If it were not for Celebrate Recovery, I would not be standing here today. The only difference is they confess their sin, and most of us don't. That's the difference. That's what makes them those people. And you know what those people are? They're courageous. They are courageous for sitting in a group and saying, you know what, I'm addicted to porn. Or you know what, I'm addicted to drugs. Or you know what, I've, I've done whatever. It takes courage to confess your sin and humble yourself before the Lord. You know, pastor's going through Revelation right now. He hasn't got to chapter 21 yet, but when he does, in chapter 21, it says there will be no cowards in heaven. There will be no cowards in heaven. Only the courageous will be in heaven. You want to be courageous? Confess your sin. Confess your sin. Get on your face before the Lord and let go of that prideful attitude. That's the only thing holding it back. It's pride. It's the opposite of humility. Pride. So those three things, our sin, our 
complacency and comfort and our own prideful attitudes. As I mentioned before, the Lord has given us a prescription for healing. A prescription to bring about healing, not just here, but out there. And it's 2 Chronicles 7.14. If this country ever needed healing, it's today. If this country ever needed a turning point, it's today. If you think things are bad now, just wait till November. You want to make a difference? Here's what, here's what it's going to take to turn this country. It's not a matter of putting somebody in the White House. Okay? Yeah, we need to vote. But our hope is not in the White House. It's in God's house. It's in Jesus. Okay? You want this country to change? Do you want to make a difference in this country? Do you want to see revival in this country? It begins right here, right now, tonight. It's not about waiting for them to do something. God is here tonight to say, I want you to do something. When Isaiah had his great vision before the Lord, and the Lord said, whom shall we send? Isaiah didn't say, oh, hey, look, there's a guy over there. Why don't you go send him? And when, when the Lord came to... Uh, just lost his name. <laughs> Anyways, whoop, right out the window. Golly, that's going to drive me nuts, and it's going to drive you nuts while it drives me nuts to try to figure out who I'm talking about. Anyways, we'll use Isaiah. Isaiah didn't stand there and go, well, look, well, why don't you send this guy or somebody else or over there or this person? It's not about other people. And when the Lord came to Gideon, <laughs> and he's in the wine press, threshing out the wheat because he's afraid of the Philistines, and the Lord comes to him and says, uh, hey, you know, what's going on? The Lord is with you. He's like, if the Lord's with us, then why are we in this mess? Anybody asking that question? Okay. If the Lord is with us, then why are we in this mess? And here's what the Lord said to Gideon. Go, you go in this strength of yours and go deliver Israel. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, let me go find somebody and I'll be back and I'll let you know how it works out. He said, no, you go. And here's this guy, he's afraid. He's, he's in the wine press threshing out wheat because the, the Philistines wouldn't let him thresh out wheat and he was afraid. So he's in there. Here's this afraid, afraid little guy. And the Lord says, uh, you go now. And Gideon goes and delivers the entire nation of Israel. One guy. One guy. But here's the thing. God is here tonight, and he's saying, who am I going to send? And each one of us has the opportunity to say, okay, I'll go. I will go. And you know how we go? We follow the prescription of 2 Chronicles 7.14. So I'm going to have the worship team come back up. And we're going to take the opportunity to follow 2 Chronicles 7.14 tonight. Because if we're not willing to do it in here, we have no reasonable expectation that it's going to happen out there. So as long as nothing goes on in here, ain't nothing going to happen out there. But if we want something to happen out there, then we need to do something in here. Because the answer to this world is not Congress. It's not about changing laws. It's about changing hearts. It's about us, the people of God, getting on our face before God, confessing our sin, humbling ourselves before God, and praying. God says, if my people who are called by my name, not who are called to go to Washington, who are called to live somewhere in this world, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face. And there's a difference between seeking his face and seeking his hand. His face is an indication of relationship. His hand is an indication of provision. We're great at seeking his hand. I need this. 
God says, I want you. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Remember, Solomon asked the Lord to provide a pathway for revival in case the people of God went astray because of complacency and comfort in provision. That's what his prayer was. And that night, the Lord comes to him in a vision during a dream and says, okay, you want it? Here it is. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, not the world, not turn trying to get Target to change their their policies, will turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. You want America healed? This is how it happens. It happens right here, right now, tonight. We can stand before God and say, here are we, send us. We can be the answer. If all it took was one man hiding in a wine press, we got, what, 100, 200 people here? A little bit more. If God can turn an entire country around with one person, what can he do with 200 people? Hmm? God's looking for people. As, as Stephen says, he's looking for people who will be history makers and nation shakers. You want to be one of those people tonight? It's going to take courage. It's not just raising your hand and saying, oh yeah, I want to be that. No, it's going to take us getting on our face before the Lord, confessing our sin, letting go of our prideful attitude and comfort, and allowing God to mold our character into the type of person he needs to be kingdom agents in this world. So if that's you tonight, here's what I want you to do. I want you to come down. I want you to come down to the altar. If you're willing to do that, if you're willing to be that person, get down to this altar right now. And we're going to get on our knees. I don't know where you are with the Lord. I don't know what the sin is in your life. And we all have sin. It's not a matter of, oh, I'm telling you, you have sin and I don't. Believe me, I've got sin in my life. It has nothing to do with, with position. It has nothing to do with responsibility. It has everything to do with the fact that we are God's people. And we have the opportunity to be the church tonight. We have the opportunity to be the spark of revival in this country. So tonight, here's what we're going to do. We're going to follow the prescription right out of the Bible. We're going to hold God to his own word. And we're going to ask him to hear from heaven. So, Father, in Jesus' name, Father, tonight we just, we come tonight, Father, and we want to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Lord, your word says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. So tonight, Father, we get on our knees, not not as a special position, Lord, but as a symbol of humility. Lord, we come before you and we confess, Lord, that you are God. Lord, you are the one true living God in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ, for the gospel of Jesus Christ that gives us the right, the privilege to come boldly before the throne of grace where we will receive mercy. So tonight, Father, we come and humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. And tonight, Father, not only are we humbling ourselves before you, Lord, we are praying, Lord, we want to see your face. Lord, we confess that it is our comfort and and, and our complacency, Lord, that has caused us
to desire your hand more than your face. So Lord, we ask for forgiveness. Lord, we ask, Father, to forgive us from looking at you as just a provider. Lord, we want to look beyond your provision to who you are. Lord, you are the God who loves us. And Lord, we want that relationship. Lord, you gave up everything in Jesus so you could have a relationship with us. Father, forgive us for looking past that relationship, for, for esteeming it lightly. And tonight, Lord, we want to declare we love you. We love you, Father. And Lord, we want that relationship in our lives. We need that relationship. Lord, even though you are our provider, Lord, the thing we need the most is not your hand, it's your presence. Lord, it's your presence in your life. So Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name that you would manifest your presence to each and every person here tonight in a real and tangible way that would touch us. And Lord, it would, it would break us. Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. And Lord, you're, you, you say if we turn from our wicked ways, so tonight, Father, we confess our sin. Lord, we confess, Father, Lord, that we hold unforgiveness in our hearts. Lord, we confess that we, we are bitter. Lord, we confess that, that we, have, we have looked upon others with contempt. Lord, we have condemned those around us, Lord, and instead of showing love, Father, Lord, we've showed hatred. And Lord, Oh, Father, we ask for your forgiveness. And right now, in Jesus' name, Lord, each and every person here, I just want you to spend some time, just a few minutes with the Lord. And as the Holy Spirit brings to your mind specific areas for you to confess, just let it out right now in Jesus' name. Just confess those things to him. Just release it right now. So I'm going to give you a moment to do some work with the Lord, to do some work with the Holy Spirit and just deal with him face to face in Jesus' name. The Bible says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So tonight, regardless of what you confessed, the Lord has forgiven it. The Lord has forgiven it. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So following this prescription, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then God gives a promise after that. And it is a promise that we can hold him to. And it's a promise that we want to see take place today tomorrow, next week, this year, next year, and throughout the rest of our lives through this, this city, this state, this country, and around the world. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear from heaven. So tonight, God's promise is he has heard our prayer. I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. Your sin has been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. And then what's he going to do? I will heal their land. Say it with me. Heal their land. You ready for God to heal this land? Are you ready? Now that we have come before the Lord, we have confessed our sin, He is hearing from heaven, are you ready to intercede on behalf of this, this city, this state, and this country? Are you ready to do that? So tonight, let's hold God to His own word that He will heal this land. And we're going to go out. We're going to sing 
and lift up our voices in praise. And we're not just going to ask God to heal our land. We're going to thank Him for doing it. Because in God's economy, He's already doing it. And He's already done it. And we are going to see it. The Word says that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. So despite the chaos that goes on outside, despite how dark it is, Jesus is victorious. It doesn't matter what the enemy does. It only matters what Jesus has already done. The victory is secure, and we can stand on that promise of hope. So tonight, let's celebrate Jesus and the victory he promises over this country. Tonight we've answered the call. Whom shall I send? Here am I, Lord. Send me. Send me. Lord, whatever it takes, do whatever it takes in me for you to send me to be an agent of your kingdom to this dark and dying world. So tonight we can rejoice in the victory of Calvary because the gospel that is powerful through you is first powerful to you. So that which you preach to others is true about yourself in that God has set you free. And as we walk out tonight, remember, you don't have to come to church to humble yourself before the Lord, to seek His face and turn from your wicked ways. You can do that every single day. And the more we do that, the more he will answer and he will heal our land. So the answer to the hope of this world is not out there. It's right in here. It's us. We have become the hope of the world because of his plan. It was his plan, not ours. It's not us against them. It's us for them in Jesus' name. Amen? Come on, give the Lord a hand tonight.